Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 80. My guest is Charlie Hodges. I'm sitting here with Charlie Hodges here at Shetler Studios. They uh, donate their space for me when I do my podcasts here. Thank you. Yes. And I'm very excited that you are here. You're in town from Los Angeles because you're doing a show Monday night at the Joyce. And I became a huge fan of yours because I listened to your TED Talk. Your Broadway credits, you work a lot with Twyla, were Come Fly Away, Times They Are Changing, and The Incredible Moving Out. And you also, uh, you received the Presidential Award for being one of the best dancers in the United States. Second place at the National Foundation for Advancement in the Arts for the Presidential Honors. This was in high school, my senior year in high school. 2003, I earned the European Critics' Choice Award for the Best Male Dancer of the Year. In 2010, it was the Fred Astaire Award for Best Male Dancer on Broadway. That was for my role in Come Fly Away. Yes. And then in 2014, I actually won LA Weekly as a publication in Los Angeles, and they voted me Person of the Year for my contributions to dance and dance education. That is amazing. But didn't you also win something in Europe? Uh, that was the European Critics' Choice Award, which was in 2003. For? Best Male Dancer of the Year. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> no, that's unbelievable. And I think, I mean, I've seen you on stage and I was riveted. I'm smaller stature too, but kind of tall next to you, which is, <laughs> which is rare for me. I think it was February, I was doing a, a TED Talk a day. Someone recommended yours to me. I've watched it three times. I'm gonna just start with a couple questions from sure. that and go out of order. One thing that you said, that I'm stealing from your TED Talk, but you stole from your, your mother. Your TED Talk was called, Failure Does Not Exist, Limitations Breed Innovation. Mm -hmm. And the thing that struck me was you said, you start every day with space to get better. Mm -hmm. And that is something I'm, I try to live by, and I emphasize the word try, because it doesn't happen every day. You made it clear that this is something that you have put into your life since you were a child. That's a wonderful way to start this podcast. I think my mother, was, she's always been very practical. I don't know where that comes from. I'm sure there are negatives to this, but the positives are like my brother would be sneaking out of the house all the time and she knew about it. And one day she said, John, please, if you're gonna sneak out of the house, just use the front door. I don't wanna have to keep replacing the screen on the window. Cause every time he would bust the, the net or she would buy some wine. I was like 15, it was my brother's high school graduation party. She was trying to encourage me to have a sip, but I was like, Mom, I'm underage. I was such a good boy. It's like, why are you doing this? And she's like, because I would rather you try this around supervision and a safe environment than feel like you have to hide it because that's where problems or trouble happens. So she was always very, I think, honest, straightforward, and practical. And that same thing I remember as a kid being told by different sources that I was really fat. Finally, she said, well, what do you want to do about it? I was like realizing that problems are, th are things to be done. They're doable. I thought that my being fat was, which I wasn't really fat, but that that was a fixed outcome. And for her to say, what do you want to do about it would suggest that it wasn't fixed. And I guess it kind of put the agency on my shoulders. That was very exciting. So yeah, just go on a diet or you count your calories, you exercise more, you look at all the factors that are creating that outcome. And if you alter the factors going in, then you can expect a different output. I think often people forget that we are responsible for the inputs, mm. and so we feel just a victim to the output. And that idea of making space to get better is just kind of saying, can I make a little bit of room to look at, like push back enough to see the inputs that happen first, analyze those, and then theoretically the outcome should be different. Yes. 
No, I would love that every day to get 1% better. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from and how did you get started? Um, I'm from, I was born in Utah, but I was raised in Nevada. And then I went to a performing arts high school in Massachusetts. After that, I joined the Sacramento Ballet. I was there for four years. And then I moved to New York to work with Twyla Tharp for 10. And then transitioned with Benjamin Milpier out to Los Angeles for LA Dance Project for four. For those doing the math. <laughs> um, and I got into dance, I was about seven when I started gymnastics. My brother was heavy into gymnastics and it was just easy for my mom to drop us both off. And around nine, she noticed that I was spending more time learning the girls' floor routines, which of course were to music. And it got so bad that at one competition or meet, they asked me to dance. Like, in the pause, the lunch break pause, they allowed me to perform some of the girls' <laughs> floor routines. Um, yeah. I imagine that was all illegal or inappropriate, but this was Carson City, Nevada, so yeah, you know, skirt the rules. The same time, I think she saw that was going on, and I was also going with her to jazzercise classes. Oh, and this <laughs> it was just amazing. I thought add-on combinations. It was just the coolest thing in the world. And there was a day she came in. The teacher told my mom that I wasn't allowed to come anymore, and my mom said, "Why? Because he's learning the combinations faster than the other moms, and it's it's upsetting." And so I was like, <laughs> like, rise to the occasion. Anyway, so she, she put me across the hall. There was a jazz class across the hall. So she continued her jazzercise classes, and I started taking a dance class across the hall. Uh, it was a way of just letting out energy. So I think those two things, like the gymnastics was a little bit of evidence, and then this dance jazzercise situation, I think my mom was recognizing that there was a proclivity for a certain type of act uh, activity and kind of facilitated that in a way that was easy. Yeah. Um, and then the following year, there was a Nutcracker posting. She said, do you want to do the Nutcracker? So what is it? She's like, it's a dance show. I said, is there tap dancing in it? She said, there is so much tap dancing. <laughs> and lied through her teeth. But it got me into a, an official studio and taking ballet classes and all sorts of things. And you know, from there, it just kind of carried forward. And so you knew at a very early age where you were destined? You know, I actually, I would say from a very early age, I never wanted to be a dancer. I oh. wanted to be a biology teacher. Really? Yeah, more than anything. But dance always worked. Like, as much as, a, as aggressive as the feedback was, or as harsh as the criticism could be, I don't know, it very quickly became like a church. Um, the studio was the safest place where I would forever be forgiven my sins. It was, I could mess up, I could... I don't know, I was absolutely in control of me and my circumstances in that space. So for that hour and a half, the outcome would be different if I put in more effort. If I didn't put in the effort, I could expect no change. And it started to feel fun when I realized that I had that kind of control. Yeah. And then that was where my friends were. But I would say that my relationship with dance was always very troubled. And on three like major occasions, I quit full stop. And a lot of it was because just, I think people can be so mean. Yes. People can be really, really mean. and. I don't understand why that, well, I just don't understand why. Yeah. And so I would leave it, but I would be mad that I left it because of people when it was like, you don't get to decide what I want to do. And now I'm hearing all my anger at like American Idol when s singers will say like, but you don't, I, I love singing. And Simon Cowell is like, you can love singing all you want, but that doesn't mean people need to hear it or that we can market this and make it like a successful album and all those things. So, right. And I recognize that passion or love alone isn't enough to justify success in the space. But if you love something, you should definitely be allowed access to it. Yes. I think it's when we expect to be the greatest that we run into a little conflict. Right. 
So and I, I would get angry that people would be telling me that I couldn't participate in this thing that I really, really loved. Well, I think what's fascinating with your career is on paper and you look at your bio, it's amazing. But then knowing after watching your TED Talk, the, the more talented you got, the more no's you were given. Yes. They were saying, you won't succeed. They called you short, fat, and bald, told you you had to lose weight. And they said these horrible things to you. But I think one of the things that you said is that every time you got better is because you got up. Mm -hmm. You got up from the rejection. You came back to the business. How, when someone called you a fire plug? There were three different reviews over the course of a year that all used the word fire plug, but they were unrelated publications. It's like the New York Times and then Dance Magazine, or who, I, don't, I don't recall what, but there were three unrelated publications for different shows, and they were all using this word fire plug, and I was just so amazed that people saw me as that. That's what it is, I guess. How did you keep going after? No one ever was insulting your talent. No. They were always insulting your outside appearance, which you really can't. I mean, yes, you joked about it. you're like, I can eat salad and use Rogaine. But more than anything else, they're insulting you, and it's, it's hard to continue, and yet mm -hmm. you did. So dancing I see as a verb, modeling I see as a noun. And I understand to people who are models that you have to capture motion in a photograph. But I'm thinking a little more black and white, is that dancing is a verb, modeling is a noun. A model needs to look good, a dancer needs to move well. So it never made sense to me why I was being adjudicated against the modeling standards. It doesn't matter how I look, what matters is how I move. Can I tell you a story with my body? Can I communicate emotion through movement? And so when I would get the negative criticism for that other category, maybe that was my way of compartmentalizing it to say, that doesn't matter. That anger or the judgment or whatever, that criticism you're throwing my way, doesn't really matter because that's not true in my field. So I can be short and fat, but that's not true. And so I probably just willfully ignored it. I don't know that I was doing it at the time. It was probably a survival instinct, is if I listen to that, then I should stop. If I stop, then I'm unhappy and I've allowed you to make a decision for me. That outcome isn't good. So if I reverse it, the turning point or the fork in the road is listening to you. So I need to not do that. And that allows me then to go down this other path which is one of me being able to dance and do the stuff that I love and have access to my own agency. There would be a review that was just so positive and a review that was so negative. But it was never about my dancing, it was always about how I looked. Short and plump and smooth skin and fat and stocky and compact and too bald and all sorts of things. I guess looking at the two of them, I felt there was a day that it clicked to me, why would I listen to reviewer A who says I'm beautiful, but then not listen to reviewer B who says I'm ugly? When both A and B are coming from the same place, they're both just people out there reviewing a show. Yeah. And I don't, it didn't seem right to pick and choose. I'll only listen to the people I like. That doesn't necessarily foster growth. You either listen to both or you don't, or you reject all. And in the beginning, my answer was to reject all. What I've learned since then is that actually you want to listen to both. Mm. So the criticism gives you some negative feedback that allows you to learn how you're communicating what you're putting out there and how people are receiving that message. And you want to be in control of that. So if you're only hitting 5% of your audience, then you need to reevaluate so you can reach a larger population. But then also listen to what you're doing well. Listen yeah. to what you're good at and allow yourself to be good at things. And for whatever reason, I think more and more we conflate arrogance and confidence. And we think that being like saying I'm good at something means I'm saying I'm better than you. And that has no comparative value. I'm just saying that I'm good at a thing. Yeah. And you're allowed to be good at a thing. And being good at a thing gives you the confidence to continue doing that thing. And that can also fuel the things that you're not good at. 
I'm good at this and I feel good about that so I will endure the struggle of having to acquire a new skill and the shame of it and the mess ups and the failure yeah. but if you only focus on the, the bad I think it's, it's really hard it's like only eating Brussels sprouts without butter or salt or pepper it's just it's hard to you can't really get through that yeah so you gotta dress it up a little bit I think you can dress up your failures with a little bit of wins and yeah. kind of motivate you to be like, okay, I can, I can do this. Yeah. Well, I know just this week I got a rejection letter back. Sorry, I wrote a play and it was a rejection letter back from a festival and they eviscerated it. And I was like, I was ready. I was like, I'm never writing again. I'm, you know what I mean? So I, it's like that type of criticism is so hard and it feels like you were given that for so long in your career, one year you auditioned for 14 ballet studios, and next year you auditioned for 44, mm-hmm. and you got rejected from all of them. Yes. And none of it was because of your talent. Well, all 14 said no. When I did 44, two of them said yes. One of them was in Germany, and they said, but the contract started like two weeks ago, so we need you now. And I was like 20 or 21. The idea of moving to Germany was a little scary, and I had to finish my contract with Sacramento Ballet, so it wasn't available. The other company that said yes is, uh, was in like Denver, Colorado, and the director was very honest, just said, listen, we would be so thrilled to have you, but you should know that because we can't pay you full salaries, people work part-time in the office doing like faxes and mailing and answering phone calls. Just like, so I don't, I think we would be happy to have you, but I don't know that this is where you would like to be. Oh, right. So technically, out of 44, two of them did say yes, but neither of them was a, a viable candidate. You also talked about the fact that you think you, you could have studied your growth at an early age. <laughs> and when did your hair start falling out? Yeah, that was my best friend um, once said in hindsight, she was like, it's just so weird, Trevor, because it happened so suddenly and it finished so quickly. Like by 23, it was starting to thin. No, 22, it was thinning. By 23, it was so thin that I felt having any sort of hairstyle, people were looking at me thinking, I wonder if he knows that he's balding, or he's not admitting that he's balding. And I felt like at that point, 23, 24, I was like, you know what, I either need to keep it really short or shave it, because yeah. I want people to know that I understand that I'm balding and I'm okay with it. So yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty sudden. Well, and I can completely relate because my hair started going. I mean, I've done a lot to it. Rogaine to the topics to I've had a procedure done because it's so necessary. And I think it's so ego crunching in, mm-hmm. in your early 20s because you are being judged for what you look like, especially when you're short. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're shorter and you're a dancer, you're already shoved to being a character actor. And you, I'm loving now in my 40s, but when you're in your 20s, you're like... No, and you talk about they were always making you be the clown. They were always making you be the sidekick when you had the talent to be the prince. Mm-hmm. And what did, they, what did they tell you about the prince? In, in all fairness to the they, the capital T, they, whoever the they are that right. make these decisions, there was a Nutcracker I watched, and the, it was set in the 1800s or whatever. Like, all the clothing was period. The story was the same. Everything about it was the old version. Mm. And there was a white mom, a white dad, a white Clara, and then a little black boy was playing Fritz. Oh. And in watching this, this is when I realized that as much as in performance we want to say that we're separate from and we can do anything based on talent, we're not. Because this was a different story. They didn't address any of this story. This kind of a family wouldn't have existed in this way. Mm. Or watching Moving Out when different cast members between black and white people uh, Desmond Richardson, Kareem Prentadi, and Elizabeth Parkinson and Keith Roberts. These four 
uh, alternated the same two roles. There's a dance where they're fighting. It's right at the beginning of the second act, big shot. And mm. it's just like, he'll throw her on the ground, she throws him, like tossing, sh- like, it just is, it's, it's, it's a violent dance. It's meant to be this way. And you could hear the audience as a swing for the show. I would sit in the house every night and watch every performance. The audience would respond differently if it was a white man throwing a white woman than if it was a white man throwing a black woman. They would respond differently if it was a black man throwing a black woman or a black man throwing a white woman. And this goes into kind of that, now this is like the college talk, the white male gaze or the patriarchal stuff that we have kind of looking at society. There's a lens that is just a general lens that exists. We are living in that space. Right. And so once I, I saw these two instances, it was like, oh, I can be a little more forgiving for when people don't see me as a prince because there is, it's bigger than one person at a table. This is cultural or societal. There's a bigger monster to battle. And I can't convince them that a short guy can be Romeo. That's not a battle that I alone can fight. All I can do is demonstrate, like take the opportunity if it's presented and do it to the best of my ability to change a couple minds along the way. And I think that was the same with my, my, my balding. So you know what? I don't have any hair, but that draws more attention to my facial expressions so I can be more animated and people will remember me because I'm communicating and that's what matters to communicate. It's not your hair doesn't show love or sadness, it's your face and I don't have any distractions. So yeah. it drew more attention to that. I could communicate more effectively and I don't know, as soon as I allowed myself to be in the place that I was, I found that I enjoyed the stuff I was doing with, I just enjoyed it more. Yeah, I think what's great is that after all of this hardship, you walked into Twilight. Because that's when it seems like your life pivoted. I was 22. I had applied to Lewis and Clark College to go become a biology teacher. and So that never went away. No. And, <laughs> and uh, the last minute, you know, this was after the 44 auditions and everybody said no for the most part. And I was going to quit. And I was like, you know what, this just seems silly that the only experience I would have is Sacramento Ballet. If I only have one experience, how do I know what of that was good and what of it was bad? So I need to have at least one other dance experience before I retire in order to understand or qualify where things sat. I couldn't talk about it in hindsight and say it was great. Could have been a bad job. <laughs> <That's> a um, <laughs> but I wouldn't have known that. So it was very important to me that I had at least one other job. And I saw Twyla's company, her touring company with John Sally, Keith Roberts, Elizabeth Parkinson, Ashley Tuttle, and Ben Bowman, Alex Brady had all come to Sacramento and they were performing. And it was the first time that I'd stayed awake for an entire performance. And I was like, this is really exciting. Like, this is, I want to do that. So I stayed afterwards to meet the cast. And that was when Elizabeth Parkinson came out and I saw her eyes. And I remembered her from the Joffrey billboards. Joffrey did a collaboration with Prince Music and it was called Billboards and it was a VHS and I watched it until it burned through the tape. Um, and she did this solo and she was just like a goddess to me and totally starstruck. Um, that night I thought a lot about it and some a friend of a friend of a friend said that Twyla was actually looking to hire dancers. I was like, well I would never get in, but you know, whatever. Like, why would I let that decide my fate? I would rather her decide my fate. Hmm. And a lot of that, I think, with uh, when it comes to auditions, we play these gymnastics where we, I'm not ready yet, or I could never get the part, all those things. So we're making a decision, and that's actually not our right. The person whose job that is, is the casting agent or the director. Those people are the ones who are in the position to decide if you're capable or not. So you don't get to do that for them. The same way I wouldn't want somebody to decide for me what I could and couldn't do. 
I don't then the flip side of that is I can't decide for somebody else what they can and can't do yeah so I have to put myself forward whether I think it's right or not and allow that person to make a decision on my merits and so I did she called on Thanksgiving Day and said you know Charlie hello who's this this is Twyla I was like oh hi she said I'd love if you're ever in New York I'd love to do an audition it's like I could come to New York she said well I mean if it should happen it's like no I'll make it if you want me to make it happen I'll, make, I'll buy a ticket she's like I just I can't I can't pay for you to come so if you're around it's like I'll be there on January I flew out on January 1st the audition was on the 2nd at this point I still had never seen her and I didn't do any Google search. I don't even know if that was around then. So I had no idea what she looked like. So I walked into ABT's studios and she said, I said, excuse me, is Twyla Tharp auditioning or rehearsing in here? She's like, hello. I said, oh, are you Twyla Tharp? And she said, oh, yes, I am. Said, it's wonderful to meet you. And then she said, how are you doing? I said, not very well at all. I had food poisoning and diarrhea all last night. And then after that came out, <laughs> when I realized that maybe I shouldn't, that's not how you, that's not how you lead, you know, present yourself. Um, but I think that I'd like to think that that kind of honesty was endearing or allowed her to see like you're not here for fame and fortune or for bragging rights you really just are interested in dancing yeah and so I carried no I don't have any shame about that that's what it was danced and uh, right after that she said we'd love to hire you you're great I said but aren't I'm not too short and fat for you literally you said that yeah and she's like, what are you talking about? Why would you be too short and fat? I said, that's just what everybody tells me. She's like, no, I'll take you exactly as you are. It's like, wow. It was the first time in my career at that point that my body was, it wasn't even a, like a, a qualifier, like a, listen, you're really short and fat, but we'd like to hire you. Yeah. It just, there was no, there just didn't exist. And I think that's part of why for the next 10 years I was so grateful because she didn't see me for that history and I didn't see her for her history. We just saw each other as two interested, curious people who wanted to explore movement in a studio. I'm just curious what that must have felt like. What? All of a sudden, I mean that, cause, I mean, I got goosebumps you just saying that. So I mean, that, that actually have that type of moment for someone, also mm-hmm. just something you probably never thought was gonna happen. No, so I think you, I, you throw that to the back of your your mind you don't look at that until later and that that goes into that other comment at the beginning of my life I tried to if I was going to ignore the people who were negative then I also needed to ignore the people who were positive and that was my mindset then so she would say something like that and I would ignore it because I was supposed to ignore anything anybody ever said to me and then 10 years later I look back on things and preparing for that TED talk and stuff was well, that was when I started to realize what was happening to flip the story to say that instead of it being an either or why couldn't it be a both and yeah and why can't I listen to both of these and if I had listened to it I think I would have allowed myself to feel a type of relief or a gratitude or other stuff that isn't as overbearing I guess yeah this was wonderful but then right after that I ran into Elizabeth Parkinson again and I was just so starstruck um, she and, actually listens to this and she comments every once in a while and I get starstruck. <laughs> yeah. So she was there and she was in the hallway and she's like, how did it go? How was the, um, I don't know, audition? Like, she didn't know what to call it. And I said, uh, it was good. She's like, well, do you know anything? I was like, I don't know. She's going to tell me later. And I couldn't even tell her because she was still with the company and I was like, the idea of working with her, I couldn't wrap my head around that. So I had to... My instinct was to say it's not happening yet. I wasn't ready to admit it. So I lied to her. I said, I don't know. I'll find out. And then I carried on and left. The funny thing is both times I met her, 
that evening in Sacramento, I went out with some friends to a restaurant, and on the jukebox was playing Purple Rain, which was the Prince song that she danced a solo to, like within an hour. I thought that was interesting. But then in New York, when I ran into the hallway for the auditions, it was winter, the Olympics were happening, and Johnny Weir, somebody was skating to Purple Rain. And that was on the television in the hotel room right after the audition. I was like, this is really weird. At both times. And then when I got to Dancing Moving Out, the first national tour, and she was in New York. And then I left the tour to join the New York show, and I was there for a couple months a year. Um, and I was a swing for a couple parts, but then I was given some dedicated performances of Eddie, which was John Celio's part. And um, I always got to do my Wednesday show, I think it was Wednesday, was with Elizabeth. Because the casting was always... Yeah. It was scheduled, but it was different. The principals only did four or five shows a week. Elizabeth made sure that one of her shows was with one of my Eddie's, and so we got to dance together, and that was really, that was like, that was a definite highlight, I would say. Well, what was the journey with Moving Out? I, Moving Out is a show I actually saw three times, mm-hmm. and I saw the Actors Fund, mm-hmm. which it was electric. My background is dancer dancing, but I could not do Moving Out. I was never at that level. Oh, I could pretend I was. I wasn't. I, it was unbelievable. You know what I mean? I was riveted. So I, how did that start? Twyla had a touring company of six people who were the six principals for moving out. They had set up two years' worth of touring. During the first year, they were building moving out on tour in between their repertory shows. They did the Chicago tryouts, and it was going so well, it was headed to Broadway. So those six people, because they were the core of moving out, the tour was empty. So Uh she hired six new people to fill in those spots on tour. It's a fascinating logical transition. So I was hired and I learned a lot of John's parts. And then when the the touring of her touring company finished, moving out on Broadway was so successful that the tour of Broadway's moving out was starting. And Uh so they needed somebody to play John. And I had already gone into playing John in the touring company, so I was a logical fit for John and moving out. Same thing was for Matt Dibble, and for, uh, there's another dancer, Whitney Simler, who went on to play Brenda, or Elizabeth Parkinson's role. Everybody in the, the second company for her rep show ended up joining into the, the first national tour of Moving Out. So we we're always kind of like a shadow, yeah. a shadow group. And so that was kind of how all that happened. We still had the audition process and all the, you know, the people get involved where, while I was a logical fit to, you know, perform Eddie, my appearance, I didn't have that, you know, that drop-dead gorgeous, heartthrob, tall, broad shoulders, kind of mischievous appearance. And so it was hard for a lot of people to see me in that part, mm. which is why I was then a swing. I also had a, I can learn a lot of choreography very quickly and retain very well. If I was on their side, I would have put a person like me into a swing position because that's a reliable place. That, that's a good use of that skill set. So yeah, I think the show is incredible. I had a wonderful time watching I took my job as a swing very seriously because in my mind I thought for the audience's point of view there's a storyline that's happening and Twyla's choreography was loose enough that different people would interpret different seeing things different ways. Mm. Highlight different steps, if somebody's a turner they're turning a lot, if somebody's a jumper they're jumping a lot. So if I'm a swing for jumper and a swing for turner and they're both doing the same part, the day that I go on if the jumper is dancing and I do a whole bunch of turns it suddenly I think becomes a conflict. Mm. So I would want to follow the show of all the people that were performing to track where they were in their story, what they were highlighting, because I thought if I were to go in, the most successful job of a swing is for the audience not to notice that it's a different person. 
that's confusing. Yeah. And so I would want to pick up the story from where they left off. So for the most part, as a swing, I never felt like I was doing my show. I felt like I was an ambassador of somebody else's show. And I really wanted to understand how they were working and interpreting and pursuing so that I could chaperone it across the finish line in a responsible way. But it always felt, I left the Broadway tour, the first national early. I was only there for eight months. And I sat down with Twyla one day and I said, listen, I, I'm, I'm gonna leave. She's like, why? And it's true, I was with all of my best friends, making a great paycheck, doing these long-term sit-downs, like six weeks in Boston, eight weeks in Los Angeles, so you had like stability. No responsibilities for bills at home, I mean everything about it, doing this incredible show. And I said, I just, I don't feel balanced, I don't feel like I have earned the right to this type of benefit, that I hadn't, I hadn't built the ship. Mm. All these other people built the ship and then I was a stowaway and jumped aboard at the last minute and just got to feel the wind on my face. It was uncomfortable. And she's like, well, you know, there's no other work for you. This is like, if you leave moving out, I don't have any other job. You're not leaving for something. It's like, I understand that. And it's, it, but it just, it's not balanced. I love this too much and I don't know that I've worked. I look in hindsight and I think I was stupid because it was a great job. Yeah. And... A lot of people argued, Charlie, all of the work that you did was everything leading up to that. Four years at Sacramento Ballet and growth and effort and trial tribulation and then her touring company. Like, that was the work you did to earn this type of reward or the benefit. But I was a little too, I don't know, literal or weird. What kind of insecurity did you think that you thought you didn't deserve it? I just, it didn't seem like, you know, and this is probably why I got injured, is that I would say to myself, if I'm not hurting, like I would finish a show and if I didn't limp off the stage, then I hadn't left it all out there. Like everyone limped off that stage. Yes, all the time. But this was in Sacramento Ballet. This was like, if I didn't, I wanted to give it my best. And to me, giving it your best meant that you were so exhausted, like there was nothing left to give. I've really depleted. And if you walk off the stage and you're not sweating and you're skipping, you're like, yeah, let's go party tonight. Then I would feel like I hadn't done this service. I hadn't honored, like it was really religious in this respect. Like I hadn't actually sacrificed anything. And I feel like to really reach a certain space of, of communication and experience, you have to risk something, you have to put it out there. And I was very physical with that interpretation of what I was risking. Mm. So I, I would push my body to just extremes, jump as high as I could, turn, stretch, anything, really feel it, almost to the point of, it was masochistic, absolutely. I remember during like intermission, the beginning of second act, you start, you're, you've come back from war and you're all crazy, this character, Eddie. It was weird when like at intermission, people would have a birthday cake, that would be a perfect time for the birthday cake oh, for yeah. somebody in the cast. I was like, no, I can't, I can't have just, as a character, been responsible for the death of a best friend and been judged or ridiculed by his widow. Yeah. And then go have some birthday cake and then come back and be like, oh, I'm all torn up from Vietnam War. Like that was, it was very hard for me to understand that. Yeah. So I would go into intermission, staying in that same space, change my clothes and just like hide in a dark corner and just wait until it was the time for the show because it just made more sense, yeah. I guess. I'm sure there's a name for this, method acting or something, whatever. It's um, called Fantastic, is that, what it's called. You're, that's amazing. No, that's amazing. So it was just, and then I realized, like, for the show, equating effort and work, that if you're getting the reward, you need to put the stuff in. And it just didn't, I, it's really just that. It just didn't feel balanced. I remember using that word and saying that all the time. It's just like, I feel like I've won the lottery, and I don't, I don't know that I'm deserving of that kind of success. Maybe it just totally was insecurity. It was the number of times I was told I couldn't do things 
best friends, even best friends would say like, you can't perform this part. Like you'll never be able to perform this part because you're too good. You don't drink. I didn't, I hadn't had alcohol. My first drink was like, like 26 or something. Mm. I didn't do drugs. I didn't stay out late. I didn't party. I wasn't sexually promiscuous. I wasn't straight. I wasn't all the things that are quantified in this character. I remember having a conversation with Twyla saying, this is the feedback I'm getting. I'm not right for this part. I know that you want me to do this, but it's not a good fit. Mm. She said, where do you prioritize yourself the most? Um, because I was saying, am I supposed to go do this now? Do I need to like sleep around and do drugs? And is that what I need to do? Because I'd like to do it, but I don't know how to get, I don't know how to access that. Right. And like, I want to rise to the occasion. I don't know how to get there. Is that how I do it? She said, where's your priority? I said, in the studio as a dancer. She said, so it's not a possibility. Because if your priority is as a dancer in the studio, not getting sleep and destroying your body with drugs and alcohol is not prioritizing that. So if your priority is in the studio, you focus on doing that and you do the best you can with that space. And that was like, okay, so, and then she did say, also, Charlie, it's called acting. Yes. <laughs> I was like, thank you for that permission. What I needed was permission to not, like, to find a different way to come about that that story. And I think as a swing, watching the show over and over and over, and, and like literally everybody, I, I never missed a show. To understand how people were telling the story and what shows resonated and too much action from a secondary character when the audience needs to be watching this was disrespectful because that's the storyline. Yes. So how do I facilitate the storyline so that everybody walks out of this? They might not be looking at me, but I want them to walk away thinking that the show I was a part of was phenomenal. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there was a perfect segue to a question that just brought up. One of my pet peeves are when dancers get put into a box that they don't act. Just talking to you and talking about your process and then even what Twyla said, I think that dancing is an incredible form of acting. Mm -hmm. And we're wonderful actors. It's so it's, it's great that you combine the two processes. I think, in my mind, you, an actor is an actor and a dancer is a dancer. Yes. But I think actors are storytellers and dancers are storytellers. And so to me, if I had any preference, I would change best actor categories and the Tonys and things to mm. best storyteller. Oh, yeah. Because that obliviates or whatever. It gets rid of this need to say that actors are different or dancers or singers. Like a singer is a singer, not a storyteller. And we don't say best, like we say best actor in a musical and best actor in a play. Yeah. And so we're differentiating by the medium, but the person's participation is radically different. And we see them as the same because they're both called actors. Mm. And I think that's the problem. What we need to do is recognize that a dancer, a singer, and an actor are different, but they're all storytellers inside of these genres of plays, musicals, and dance shows. So yeah. if we just call them all storytellers, right. it's not a big deal. But I think people rarely say, oh, they're a singer, they can't act. Mm -hmm. But they often say, oh, they're a dancer, they can't act. Yes. And that, I mean, that drives me crazy. I mean, but the world is definitely changing. Your relationship with Twyla continued and times are changing. Was mm -hmm. that next? Moving Out was a huge success, yes. a huge hit. Yes. And times were changing. It was not. It was imploded. And I worked with Lisa Gaida, uh, who you mentioned before. We were in Spamalot, which was a huge hit. She left Spamalot to go do mm -hmm. Times Are Changing, which flopped. Mm -hmm. So, how was that all of a sudden to go from a, a Twyla hit to a Twyla like, bomb? I think the first thing to say is that it's all in perception mm -hmm. because while people perceive it as a bomb or a flop, I to date think it was a brilliant, brilliant show. Mm. Part of this is that I read 
maybe 47, was it? 43, 47 books all about the traveling circus, the history of carnivals and whatnot, and integrated all of that knowledge. I watched every documentary about freak shows and I analyzed every Bob Dylan song. Like I had done so much research. I would sit in the Bryant Park, the public library in New York, reading Jeppy on the Hill and these old manuscripts about like the history of clowning and Polly Chanel's and the family of like really immersed myself in this world. Yeah. And what's sad about the situation is that the levels of depth, the Easter eggs, the the work that went into making that show was phenomenal mm. and really meritorious. The other side of this whole story is the public facing stuff that I do think, you know, it was in response to kind of that earlier statement about dancers can't act. I think it was very upsetting for Twyla to be told that her performers like John and Keith, they weren't deserving of Tony nominations. And they were all up for Tony's during that 20, I don't know, 6, 2006, yeah. whatever it was. But people were upset because they felt like they were taking away an opportunity for somebody who is a real actor to be nominated. In uh. And it, I would be rightly angry saying, no, they're, they have every, every right to be in this place too. Yeah. And so her, there was a side mission of saying that dancers can sing and they can act and they can even change their own costumes and they can move their own sets. And she was really adamant about saying like, dancers are God's greatest gift. Mm. <laughs> they can do everything too, right? And so I think she really wanted to prove that. So the show was exhausting because we really were moving sets yeah. and we were changing our costumes on stage and we were singing and dancing and acting and just all of it. But... I think sometimes when you're so focused on a singular mission, decisions that you make, and this is for everybody, I'm not speaking to Twyla, we should always check our agenda and know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're doing things for honest reasons, it finds its way. Oof. <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. If you're doing something for attention, then expect to get attention, but attention is a fickle thing and it could be negative and positive. If you're doing something out of passion, Passion is a more heartfelt thing, and it doesn't matter the outcome because you're doing it because you love it. Right. Right? And I think these are the differences between it doesn't matter. Show. The show, though, I think the experience was horribly negative. Mm. And it was the, that was one of the times that I quit entirely and ran. I moved to Seattle and lived in my brother's attic and went to school at the University of Washington and got a degree, uh, minored in architecture, and was just like... My first, like, I was the first time in college, I just needed to get as far, literally as far away as possible, so it was an attic in Seattle. Oh, wow. And how long were you there? Two and a half years. The negativity was, I mean, it was from all, it was from all sources, right? So, I think because Twyla was working in a thousand places, she didn't have the time to be as supportive on the personal, the emotional side. Mm. So we were kind of left without, it was like, the, the parent was gone, and so the kids are running around trying to find out structure or something. And in that space, you become very vulnerable. And this is where I go to like just mean people. I don't understand. So you walk out of the theater after a show and somebody says to you, you must be so embarrassed. And I don't know what the value of that conversation is. I agree. Like, do you want to have a conversation about what you saw? We can do that. But to start with, I must be so embarrassed is a huge assumption to begin with. Why don't you ask me how I feel about this? instead of like leading the witness, if you will. How did you feel about that? And then I could tell you my point of view. But don't co-opt my emotional opportunity by telling me how I'm supposed to be feeling. Yeah. I think that's rude. 
and I don't I just don't understand where it how that's beneficial to yeah. anybody or before a show god you must be so ashamed to be a part of that show huh it's like I'm going to go on stage now and perform and I would like to give the people that are coming the best show that I can oh yeah and I just I don't know why you would tell somebody or set them up for it just is mean yeah that's all I, it just is mean because you're now requiring me to go through 10 more additional steps mentally to prepare myself for what is my job yeah it's my responsibility whether the audience doesn't like the show is not reason for me to give up on doing my performance right because that is separate like think of your reputation I don't want to be known as a performer who shows up when it matters right but is unreliable otherwise and to me then to be the type of performer who's like even in a show that had a two week run and was being just canned left and right you're what I I will let you talk about the show negatively but I will not let you talk about me negatively I will not be the other thing and the performer that Charlie guy was a waste of time yeah kind of a thing I remember there was a best friend <laughs> uh, Michael who was in Sacramento Valley was getting ready to go into a performance he was wearing a midriff and some biker shorts for this particular costume and he just kept saying I look so fat I look so fat I look so fat and I was like listen we were dressing roommates I was like listen Michael you can either like do you look fat I mean I've seen you skinnier you look fat for you <laughs> but to the general population you look pretty good and he was just staring at me like how dare you call me fat and I said so you've got two options you can go on stage and be a fat dancer who dances badly because you feel insecure or you could be a fat dancer who brings down the house because you feel really confident and you might not be able to give them the body that you want to give them but you can still give them a really great show and from my point of view it seemed like it was a good pep talk <laughs> and he was like never talk to me again um, he's still a good friend it's fine we work through it. But I think that same thing is true, is, is this can be a bad show, and that is separate from the performance that I deliver. Right. And the reputation of the show can be separate from the reputation of the person I am as a professional. And it was important for me to distinguish that. So then, I don't know, I, I go back to those, those people, best friends, colleagues, all sorts of people that were just imposing upon me all of the emotions I was supposed to be feeling. And I just, I didn't, I don't appreciate I don't. I just don't think that's nice. No, I agree. I I was part of a show called Thou Shall Not that <clears throat> some of the hardest dancing I've ever done was Susan Troman, and we had this huge big rape ballet that was, I mean, incredible. It was like I felt like I was in movement out, um, and we had come out the stage door and people would be like, Brad, God, that's terrible, you know? What I mean, they're like, Oh, I should have been reading a book instead, and you're just like. Oh, wow. People are mean. Yeah. And so, I think you're allowed that. I don't want to say that criticism is bad. Oh. Like, we need criticism. But I think that there's a way to speak about it... Um, Dialogue. Kindly. Yeah. Right? Where it isn't a character assassination or a judgment or it doesn't invite defense. But it's like a... Wow, I had a really hard time accessing that performance. Um, but I could tell that you were really engaged. So would you talk to me a little bit about how you see the show from your point of view? Mm. Yeah. And then we can discuss, and you're like, you know what, I still don't get it, it's just not my favorite show. And it's allowed to not be your favorite show without it needing to... Like, I felt like at times there are people who are literally trying to encourage its demise. It's that same... Well, because after moving out, people, you can't, they don't want to bother to have no. two successes in a row. No. Especially a woman. No. And that's, I think, part of the meanness. It's like, it's the same thing, I think people think that there's a limit to success. That only one person can be at the top. And I see this when I teach classes, 
that some dancer is a really good student and their friend kind of gets de- like feels a little dejected because my friend is the one who did the multiple pirouettes. Mm. I look at the other one, I was like, you could do that too. Like imagine a world where everybody in the studio is dancing like that. Similarly, I think about it like when I was a boy, I thought that I had a limited number of heartbeats and that if I spent them all too fast, I would die young. I didn't want to die, so I would try not to spend my heartbeats. And then a doctor was like, maybe that was why I was fat. <laughs> um, a doctor said, no, Charlie, for every beat you spend, you get two in return. And he was trying to explain, like, it's good to, to beat your heart for exercise. Yeah. like, oh, oh, this is exciting. And that idea that one thing could grow more was just a fantastic realization. And I apply that in this situation to, like, success... If everybody, like we don't need just one where we need to limit it. We have one like winner and all the others are losers. In this environment, we actually could have like every person performing on Broadway from the core to soloist to principal parts could be phenomenal. Yeah. And what would that, what does that world look like where everybody is great? Like, and why do we need to feel like, well, somebody's already there, so I can't. Yeah. Or why do you not feel like because you're not the principal, you can't be, be great as a swing. You're not on stage that often, but you could still be great as a swing. Absolutely. You're part of a wonderful big picture. So body dysmorphia and recurrent theme, and you never look fat to me, even the pictures you showed me as a kid, is something that I think is talked about a lot with women and body image with women. I think now men are more, talk about it more, but it seems like you, it's been something that you've dealt with your whole life. How do you handle dealing with body image? I don't. I struggle with it every day. Yeah. I still hate myself. Especially after retiring from performing. Though, if anybody ever has like an idea for a show and they're like, that guy needs to do this, you know, call me. Yeah. I'm always open. I think having grown up, I have a very different appreciation for how fragile we are in our youth. How impressionable. And it makes me really ang- I'm now maybe part of why I want to like start a toy company or why I think about kids all the time. All they need is to feel safe and to feel loved. And if they have those two things, then the sky's the limit. They're creative, they explore, they risk, they try. If you fracture either of those things, safety or love, then the course of the rest of their life is radically altered. Brains, are how they're developing, how, what they understand, how they see the world. They learn all of this as a kid through play. And when we get in the way of that, I think we are doing irreparable damage on a long-term basis. And that to me is a criminal, it's a horrible thing. Yeah. And so I want to find ways to say like, no, you're good, you're safe, you're good, you're good, just, you're good. Continue doing what you're doing as a kid. It's weird. You walk on your toes all the time. How cool. Walk on your toes all the time. We'll deal with your Achilles tendon <laughs> later. <laughs> it's important to me, I think, because having been told that I was short and fat, and mostly fat, from the time I was seven years old, like it is so much a part of everything that passes. I can't eat without feeling guilty about something. And it would be really nice not to have to go through these annoying mental gymnastics of, I want to allow myself two bites of ice cream. Okay, but one more, but I really want it, but don't do it because you're going to hate yourself. You're going to regret like all that stuff, mm. that chatter. And I look at somebody else who just appears to be enjoying ice cream. I feel like I don't allow myself because of how my brain is now wired. I don't enjoy going to a beach because I don't want to be without a shirt. Uh, and I live, in, I live like eight minutes away from the beach in Los Angeles, and I just refuse to go. I hate wearing shorts because I don't think my legs look good. Oh, I yeah, yeah, that's... try to cover my body with drapes, and th- I just, I'm, I'm miserable, but I'm, I'm not. Like, 
when I look at people who have a body like mine, I think, wow, you look good. Yeah. Like, even when there is a little belly, like an out-of-shape belly, you're like, that's sexy. Like, I don't, I see it on other people, and I think you look hot. And then I look at myself, and I think you're not. And it's just, it's, I will not allow myself the same permission that I grant everybody else to be a normal human. And I don't judge them. I don't feel like people who, I, there is no, I don't care. Yeah. I see you as a person, but I can't, for some reason, I can't flip the switch for how people would view me and feel like I can be accepted. Well, it seems like from getting to know you a little bit and watching stuff, especially from your TED Talk, you've been able to switch that switch in so many other parts of your life. Oh, are you challenging me? That's no, a I, good no, challenge. I, just, I think yes. so, you know what I mean? Whether you've done it with, with your talent or with your education, and with your your point of view on life, that it's you've moved forward on so many other directions. How come this one is something that you haven't been able to switch? Because in this case, the person who's telling me no is me. Mm. Maybe that's the difference. So you tell me that I can't do a part, and I get angry, and I say, you don't get to decide what I do and don't get to do. And so I'm going to go and figure out a way to be able to do that part. So it's an external source is the one that's saying no, is the, is the obstacle. Mm-hmm. And I can navigate around an external source. I think in this case, the obstacle is internal. And that goes into self-worth and all those things. And I wonder if it's, it's a really good question. Dang it. It's almost like you've just removed my excuse to allow <laughs> myself to continue like, behavior that I'm not proud of. I mean, you're so inspiring that it's, I mean, and you've moved so far in so many directions that you've shared with me that it's interesting that you, when you said every day, you still, it's that this self-acceptance about the body shaming is something that... It's got to be so exhausting for my boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he just loves me. Yeah. He's just like, you are so thick and juicy and loves it, loves it. Yeah. But so funny, I would would never even use the word thick, ever. It must drive him crazy because I will get angry. Like, don't, don't, don't talk about it. I don't want to hear about it. I want to think about it. No, no, no. (laughs) And he's like, you got it. Like, it's just, it it gets in the way of his ability to love me, no doubt. Yeah. Because when he compliments you, you don't accept it. I refuse it. You don't want to take the compliment. Well, you're going to about to take this compliment. I got comps from my, my show. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Billy Elliot. Uh, like your, one of your dress rehearsals. Come Flyway? Come Flyway. Yeah. I got front row mezzanine. And I watched you the whole time. We got, uh, I, I went back. And when you walked out on stage of uh, your TED Talk, I knew exactly who you were. I was like, that's the guy. Come, come, come fly, fly away. away. And you were unbelievable. I couldn't keep my eyes off of you. And you never... I never thought you were short, fat, and bald. I just thought you were the, the amazing. There was nothing negative about what I saw about you, but I couldn't keep my eyes off of you. You were fantastic. And so how was that experience? Because that you the show didn't run long here, but it picked up and kind of changed your life where you ended up. Yeah. And someone is warming up right now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the show was great. I was at a very different place. It was after I moved to Seattle. I moved to Seattle after the, um, the Bob Dylan show, and while I was out there, Twyla did some projects with Pacific Northwest Ballet, because I was there, she was like, you're a perfect, why don't you stage these pieces? It was a lot of material. After the Dylan show, uh, she and I went to the studio for two weeks and just made material. And I was like, what are all the things that we love to do without worrying about whether they're good or not, or if we like a step, let's do it ten times because we want to and we can. Let's use a song that we're not supposed to use because we want to and we can, and it was probably one, like my favorite two weeks I've ever had as a mm. dancer um, because it was really like in the best shape of your life on a mission to say what do I really love about what it is that I get to do and not 
like with the express intention of disregarding any of those voices at the back of your head that say, no, don't do that because you won't win a Tony uh, for choreography, or no, don't do that because you'll get a bad review, or no, don't do that because it's stupid, whatever. Yeah. It was, just do whatever you want to do. Like, hours of material. It's like 90 minutes solo or something crazy. And then she used that material to create two of these pieces. One of them was for like maybe 17 people, 15 people, and another one was for five people. And both of them were performed at PNB. And I got to go stage them and rehearse them and guest in one of the pieces to date, my favorite piece I've ever done. And I think that was my way back to dance. That process was happening at the same time she was putting on the out-of-town tryout stuff or the in-studio showing for producers of Come Fly Away. And she wanted me to come back. I was like, no, I need to do school. I'm going to finish this. For the first time, I want to prioritize not dance. Mm. I need to feel like dance doesn't control everything. And it was a very hard decision. I remember speaking to myself in the third person, like, Charlie, I wonder if Charlie's going to be able to make the right decision here. I wonder if Charlie's going to be able to resist just always doing whatever dance wants him to do. And I did. I was thrilled for that. She's like, well, if you miss this, you won't get to, you won't have an opportunity to participate in this ever again. It's like, that's fine. This is, I'm doing school. I'm doing Seattle. I'm making that happen. That show, the in the New York tryout, whatever, worked. And so they were doing the out-of-town tryout. And it was for the out-of-town tryout in Atlanta. She's like, do you want to be a part of this for this part? I was like, sure. And so I guess it was possible. And that was right when school finished. <laughs> I also, when school finished in Seattle, I emailed her and said, you know, I would like to move back to New York if you have any projects or anything. And I always, we had a very clear agreement. It was never, like, hire me because we're friends or because I expect you to, or because you're like a mom or something. But I was always... Twyla, your responsibility is not to make my life happen, and it's not fair of me to put that pressure on you. So if you ever have a project that requires a person like me, that needs the skills that I bring to the table, let me know and I'd, I'd happily participate. And so there are projects that didn't require a person like me, and then others that did. And we always started every project kind of with that agreement. And so after school finished in Seattle, Twyla, if you've got anything going on that would require a person like me, please, you know, reach out. I'm open to it. She said, well, we're doing Come Fly Away in Atlanta. Sweet. So we're in Atlanta, and that was exciting. We ended up bringing that back to New York. And I think having been in school at the University of Washington, where the dance classes, like a nine-week class culminated with a PK turn down the diagonal or something really simple. Yeah. One of the students was asked, like, what do you love about somebody in your classroom? She pointed to me and said, that guy, like, when he stands on one leg, he doesn't, like, wobble. And that was the big revelation for her. Is just like, so like the expectations in the space. I realized after that, it was like it doesn't matter how turned out I am or how high my legs go. Like I can just dance in a way that feels comfortable in my body and accept me for what it does instead of always feeling like I'm underqualified or underperforming. So I found dance through that in a way that didn't have the pressure and expectation. It was really personal, and so that was the me that got to go and to come fly away. And so I, I think I appreciated that show experience very differently because it was the first time in a, like a meaty environment that I just, that I was okay being the sidekick. I was yeah. a waiter, busboy. I'm um, always cleaning up the messes. That's kind of my, how Twyla sees me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was a comic relief. I was innocent and naive. I just, I saw the best in life and wanted the best from people. And that was... I was okay with that. Yeah. I was okay with that at that point having a shaved head, 
I was okay with like just it was a much more accepting place and I think that's probably why I had I think of that experience very positively yeah well I mean I, I mean I, re- I remember I mean and there's always I there's certain shows that you remember a, a person like I remember when I saw how to succeed business I remember it was Jerome Vavona the very first one I mean I always noticed the shorter guy that's usually me <laughs> you ended up transitioning you moved to Las Vegas with Come Fly Away uh-huh. then you moved to LA but before we get to that we, we talked about this a little bit but one another thing you that resonated with me and we talked about it a little bit is when you talk about finding your fa- your passion and it becomes your everything but then it also ends up becoming toxic at mm-hmm. some point and I think that that is something I can relate to because as much as I love this business, there are moments when it gets so defeating and so toxic and I don't believe it anymore. And it's so discouraging when I was like, this is, I love everything about this and I'm poisoning myself mm-hmm. from it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you're able to go back and forth and refresh and come back. How do you deal with like your, the love of your life becoming toxic? Preparing for that TED Talk was awesome because it forced me to put into words an experience that I had that I'd never talked about or thought about or really tried to understand and analyze. Um, So I would encourage anybody to pretend to write their own TED Talk. And for 20 minutes, you have to talk about something in your life uh, because it really asks you to understand what's going on. And that moment, when I realized that, uh, I think I cry a little bit in in the presentation. But it's very true. It's that... You realize you found this place where everything is right. It's like what you can do belongs and what you love belongs, and it just sings. But the longer you stay in that space, it's like radiation, and the longer you stay with it, the more it hurts you. And my staying in it was like making myself vulnerable to some of the negative criticism or the physical pain that I was doing to injuries on my body or the mental pain about how ugly I was or all these things. Where's the line? Do you stay and get sick or do you leave and have a broken heart? And neither option, I think I said neither option was a good one. So I tried to break it down another way. It was like, I need to go forward. I can't just sit here and look at this and be sad. That's a pity party. So if I take action, which path? If you ever find yourself with like two paths and both of them are four paths, however many paths, and all of them suck, then instead of thinking that you have to pick the one that's the least sucky, you go find a new one. You build Mm -hmm. a new one. It's like, okay, that doesn't work and that doesn't work, so I need a different option or a different way to frame this. I think a lot of the toxicity was what I was allowing to come in from the outside. And so one of the filters I built for myself from that experience was, and maybe this is for your script, you're excoriated, they say this is shit, and you think, okay, so what they're saying is that they're not understanding what I'm communicating yet. Mm. Then that's something I can hear. Yeah. I can hear that I didn't successfully communicate that step or that moment or that idea. So is there another way I can go about it to get, capture that audience member? How else can I do it? And if I do it this way and I cap that one, but now I've lost this audience member. So I need to try it again. What is the method of achieving a certain thing that captures the widest audience mm. in this communication? Because everything we do is communication. Yeah. Singing, acting, dancing, writing, all of it. And I think when I gave myself permission to reframe the criticism that was coming into me, it was like an antidote. So someone says, you're short and fat. And I would say, okay, so you don't yet believe that this body can do that part. Mm, yeah. What do I need to do then? What, what's in, what is in my arsenal? I can jump higher, and I can turn more, and I can be lighter, and I can be more flexible, and all the things that are bothering you about my stature. How can I highlight that in my performance so that it doesn't bother you? Yeah. 
change your mind or whatever. At this point now, whenever I do get negative criticism, I use my antidote, which is just to say, what are you, what are you actually communicating? And I say this like with kids, so some girl and her best friend are auditioning for Sugar Plum Fairy and one gets it and the other one's like, well, you're not going to do it very well. <laughs> and that's like such a nasty thing to say. <laughs> but what she probably means is, I really wanted to do that part too. Yeah. Or I wish I could, but I don't have the, st- the confidence to do that. Yeah. And so the answer should not be, well, that's mean, you're ugly, but would be like, I bet you wanted to do this part. You know, you can come to my rehearsals if you want, or maybe we can talk about it, or like, like you invite that person into what they're actually saying. And if somebody comes out and is like, that shit, you kind of wonder, what is your agenda? Yeah. Are you trying to prove that these other things don't because you're working on something? Are you insecure about something you're working on and it makes you feel better to bring me down? Like you're going through something and this has nothing to do with me. Yeah. So I'll let you go through it and be like, oh, okay, so you must be really frustrated. Yeah. And that's fine. And then at the same time, I can work on my delivery so that the next time around when I meet someone like you, the outcome is different and they get it. Yeah. And I think that was kind of my antidote to recognizing the third path that I found. Was I want to do this, I need to find a way to do this, but I need to do this without you dictating the path, the outcome, the method, the means. Well, I think that's uh, amazing. A couple more questions. I know uh, you went to L.A. and started a new life where you were talking about it, where you were wearing five different hats, but that also led to having your hip replaced. Yes. Our bodies, we overdo it and kill it, but you were, tell me about the ballet company that you were helping run in Los Angeles. In 2012, I helped Benjamin Milpier start Los Angeles Dance Project. And a lot of people don't know who Benjamin Milpier, he choreographed the movie Black Swan, director of Paris Opera Ballet for a time. He was a principal dancer with New York City Ballet, choreographer and a dancer. He wanted to start a pickup company that would do rep work, contemporary rep work. So not just his own choreography, but uh, William Forsyth and Cunningham, like new pieces, old pieces, middle pieces, historical pieces. Uh, I think Ben is a really great curator of art. Mm. And so he would assimilate a nice compilation of pieces, to get a really dynamic evening. In the beginning, there were six of us in the company, and it grew to about nine. It was about 10, maybe, when I retired from the company. Los Angeles-based. For the company, I was a dancer in the company, and then I was a ballet master. I was also the rehearsal director. And then when he went to Paris Opera, I kind of took on a role as a pseudo-associate artistic director. So it was a lot of hats. And during that time, there was a, I ended up tearing my labor on a part of my hip. And that tear, I couldn't really heal it the proper way. I had done something similar to the other hip like 10 years prior, and through physical therapy I could like, correct it and get back on track, but the amount of dancing and the work, and I mean, it's incredible that he was able to put together a company in the beginning that had a 44-week contract out of nowhere, so it was phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. But the downside is that it was constant, and so there wasn't a chance for me to do the type of rehab or recovery that was required. So I kept dancing on it, and I totally regret it because Three or four years later, I was just in so much pain all the time. I describe it, and this goes back to food and my body image issues. We're on tour in some beautiful place, we're like in Basel, Switzerland or something, and I'm limping down the street, and like in arm's reach is some chocolaterie chocolate store offering samples, and it's just on a tray right there, and I would love to taste some proper like chocolate. But the idea of walking over there was like three steps more than my hip could handle. Oh. And so I would just sadly like, I don't get to enjoy life. <laughs> I was so miserable and depressed. And I think people really underestimate chronic pain. Because mm. when you're chronically in pain, you live every day thinking that you're not allowed to participate. 
So you go to a party and you just hang out at a chair and everybody's dancing or walking or mm-hmm. like basic things are not available to you anymore. And it actually starts to get in the way of your creativity. When you're in the habit of saying it's not possible, then you're trying to like, I don't know, write a birthday card for somebody. I could make that. No, it's not possible. Like it really does permeate every, it's the only way you could look at life. And that's really, I have a lot of sympathy for people with chronic pain, whatever it is. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real problem. And I met a doctor and he said, you know, you could do hip surgery, but you're too young and you'll never dance again. You'll always walk with discomfort. I found another doctor who did a reconstruction. Uh, He was like, no, I've developed all sorts of methods and fancy things. Three months I was non-weight bearing and another three months I was in crutches. But non-weight bearing meant that I had to lay in a machine eight hours a day that moved my leg for me. And oh my god! It was trying to grow cartilage back and all sorts of like, really intense stuff. But that process allowed me to come back to dance with the goal of retiring on my own terms. He was like, we can get you between one and five years depending upon how active you are. And I got about seven months out of it. I will use that time to go through emotionally and mentally the process of saying thank you to my dance partners and the performers and audiences and theaters and you want to say goodbye in a way that has yeah. some sort of meaning yeah so I did that and then because uh, I also I was on a mission to not retire and be one of those bitter Betsy's yeah who is just like thinks everybody's shit or they're bad I say that word a lot wow <laughs> who thinks everybody is bad oh I don't want to be one of those people who's like every performance is bad because I'm really just jealous that I'm not doing it anymore right every, perf- every performer performance whatever so it's like I really need to make peace with this so I did, and the, um, the reconstruction was okay, but I retired and I was still in a lot of pain. So two years ago, I spoke to another doctor and I said, I think we need to replace it. It's like, you're so young. It's like, I know, doc. But so I, I hobble through my 30s and my 40s, and then I get my hip replaced in my 50s when the technology is better, because all the doctors say technology improves every two years. Okay, cool. So by my 50s, you know, I don't even have to have a hip replaced. You can, like, I swallow a pill and it fixes it. Right. But that means that my 30s and 40s were limping in pain. And I don't know that it's worth it. Yeah. I'd rather just replace it and we'll do it again in my 50s or 60s and whatever. Be done. It's like, all right. So we replaced it in March. And by April, there were some complications. All the sutures had come undone. Ooh. I had to go back in and he had to take everything out and put everything in again. Truth be told... The, the directive was use pain as my guide. <laughs> and that probably wasn't the best thing to say to a, a Charlie person. Uh, um, because after the first one, I was in no pain. My legs were going places. I, they just hadn't gone in years. I was so excited and I was working out and I probably ripped all the sutures open because uh, I felt no pain. Right. So uh, he was like, oh shoot, we need to go back in there and sew it up. But when he opened and everything was there, he was worried about infection and all sorts of things. So he replaced everything, so a second one within six weeks. And then three weeks after that, I was going on a trip for school to Costa Rica. I was like, Doc, can I go? He was like, of course, there's going to be some hiking and horseback riding. He's like, yeah, you're fine. So I went on the trip and I slipped in some mud on this midnight hike up a mountain because we we're going to camp in the jungles. Uh, I slipped and the next morning on the way down, I just had never felt so much pain in my life. Ugh. I texted them and they're like, yeah, if you can't stand on your leg, then that's bad. You've got to come back. So I flew back. I had x-rays like, oh, your implant is fine, but you've torn all of your adductors. 
like oh that's the most pain I've honestly I've never I was I was like 10 steps away from the gate at the airport and I just held onto this bar crying like waving my hand for somebody at the Costa Rican airport to like carry me and this nice man came over and like just let like brought me to the gate it was horrible tore my adductors he's like just you have to wait four or five weeks go by still in a lot of pain and well, the adductors have healed, he's like, oh, actually the tear and that, that force dislocated the socket. So we have to go back in and replace everything again. Oh my gosh. So in a matter of like seven months, I had three hip replacements and all those torn adductors. And so that was at the beginning of the TED Talk. I say, I've had my hip replaced, but there's a very different story. Yeah. Um, and then that was on a Saturday was that TED Talk. And on the following Tuesday, I think because of all the surgeries and the non-weight-bearing stuff and... Just every like the lack of like the muscle atrophy. I was standing up to get out of my car, and the pressure was just right, and I fractured my femur. <sighs> oh my gosh! I collapsed in the street and just laid there for a minute. I was like, "L.A. traffic, you've never been there for me, but today, would you just do me a solid and just end this?" I was really, it was, it was horrible. But there was no cars. There was nothing to be done, and it was one of those moments. There've been a few of these in my life where it's like the only person that is going to get you up is yourself. Yeah. Like literally, and it takes being in that position to realize that, and it's not that nobody cares about you, but everybody is really, is struggling with themselves. Like every person is struggling to survive every day. That is really hard for them to spend a moment. And even if they did pick me up off the street, they're not going to make my thigh grow faster. That's me doing that. That's my body doing that. Like, you are the only one responsible for the stuff you do in your day in your life. Yeah. You talked about people not doing stuff or standing up because of their fear of failure or taking a chance. And that you also think that some people, they think doing nothing is a success. Mm-hmm. I love when you talked about chance versus choice and luck versus skill. Mm-hmm. What I like is that you have solutions. You talk about you being in charge. You're so It's so inspiring of like being in charge of your own fate and not taking no for an answer mm-hmm. and getting back up literally and physically you, yeah. you got back up after that but you've also got back up after rejection how did this type of wonderful attitude come out of I'm sure it came out of a darker spot I think part of it is again is the practical side of my mom um, she would always say that the hardest part is finding the problem once you know what the problem is everything is just effort it's just work it's like you know, you're angry about something and then you realize, oh, I'm angry because I'm jealous because I really wanted that part. And now once you understand that, it's like, oh, well, if I want that part, then I just need to go practice. Yeah. That's it. And wait for the right opportunity. And then, so like the work is just, well, that's just sweat. There's nothing or sweat or money to pay for lessons, but it's finding the problem that is the hard, that's the deep soul searching stuff. And you were talking about failure uh, in that TED Talk, I make that chart where I say you have two options to do something or not to do something. That's it. In life, you either do something or you don't. And if there's an outcome that you want and you don't do something about it, if you don't get that outcome, well, you never tried, so it's easy to brush it off. Yes. If you get that outcome, that's really awesome, but you didn't try, so it's really luck. Yeah. And I would always think I never felt comfortable saying thank you after a performance because I didn't know if I was my skill that was doing that or if I was lucky. And I don't want to be like, thank you, like, great show, Charlie. Thank you so much. I sure was lucky. Like, what am I thanking you for? And what are you, you're complimenting not me, but chance. Yeah. So I can't really own that. And I wanted to flip that and turn that into skill and say, like, yes, I did that and I do that every night. And I know how to do that. And so when you say great job, I can honestly own it and say, yes, I, I know how to do that. Mm. 
So that going back to that chart then, if you do something about it and it turns out poorly, well, you tried and you didn't do it, so you're a failure. If you do something and it turns out well, then you're a winner. So you look at those two and one of them is like not a big deal or lucky, so the both are positive. The other one is like you're a winner or you're a failure. And that failure is so strong it's not worth the risk of this 50-50. Yeah. So we think that's a dangerous option. Trying is a dangerous option. And I'm better off not trying and hoping that luck will get me through. Yeah. But I think, and I say that in the TED Talk, luck is lonely like a one-night stand and I'm the marrying type. Yes. I think that skill is like a long-term relationship and that's somebody who's going to be there for you all the time. No matter what happens, even when you mess up, they're going to be there to help you. And that's your craft. Your technique, your skill, your professionalism, your approach, your discipline, all those things. So when you don't get the job, that's still there. Yeah. When you do get the job, that's there. When you're sick one day and you still have to do the job, that's still, like you have this reliable, steadfast companion. If you're lucky, I think that that's it's a very risky place. I don't like being vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, that can be emotionally invulnerable, but it just seems risky. Like, why bother? Yeah. And so the difference between chance and choice it's like, I want to choose the outcome, which also comes from, we did a series of eight shows with Twyla at the Joyce. They only videotaped one of them. And I was so mad because the video that they got was the worst show I did. <laughs> and that was most likely because I knew they were videotaping. Right. So I performed the worst show I could do. And I was watching, I was like, that's so unfair. That's not me. That's not how I dance. And I was like, but that's literally me. And that's literally me dancing. So that's literally how I dance. Yeah. And if I don't like that, then I need to change these odds. I need to make sure that not one out of eight shows is good because the idea that the one that they videotape and the one that's good match is a one and it's not a good shot. Yeah. But if seven out of my eight are good and one of them is videotaped, I've increased the odds that the one that I've determined to matter is one of the ones that will be one that I can live with. And so that was kind of where I realized the difference between chance and choice or luck and skill is that skill or what a professional is it's not that I can do it once, but I can do it every time. Yeah. And that's a very hard thing to master and come by. Yeah. Um, cool that you have 10 pirouettes on your Instagram story, but can you do that in person right now in front of me? And if yeah. you can't, then I'm not really interested. Yeah. Like, that's not you that did that. That was a lucky shot. I had an interesting talk with someone yesterday about fear of failure. Recently, it's been audition season. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to a lot of friends who have been like, hitting every call and they, you couldn't get into all the little small regional theaters, every, all the open calls were book, 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 book. But there were spots open for some of the Broadway shows and the tours that you could just walk in. Yesterday people were just walking into calls and I was like, why is that? He's like, because everyone thinks that they can, they'll go for the low hanging fruit, but they're not going to go to the, the Broadway audition because they don't want to get rejected from Broadway. So then I was like, I just thought that was so weird that I was like, people are standing in line at 5 a.m. to go to Omaha to do a regional theater production, but they're not going to the Broadway shows because of the fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting that rejection keeps us from living our passion. Well, and it's that saying, I think we need to turn off outsourcing the right to make a decision. I said it earlier, I don't like it when somebody decides that I can or can't do something. Of all the people on the planet, why are you the one that gets to decide that? If I want to do something, I just need to work and I can do that. But you don't get to tell me that I don't get to participate. Yeah. And there's a difference. I want to be clear here. The difference between participating and the expectation of success. 
You can sing all you want. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the next whoever. You can sing all you want, though. Yeah. And my issue is not with someone telling you you can't be successful. My issue is with someone telling you you can't participate. I want to sing, so I'm going to sing. And I can be bad at singing, but I still want to sing. Yeah. <laughs> so let me sing, right? I just can't expect you to buy my album. In the same way that I wouldn't want somebody to make decisions for what I get to do with my day, I don't want to make decisions then or I can't make decisions for somebody else. Mm. So I'm not going to go around and say, you can't wear blue. What? If you want to wear blue, wear blue. Yes. Yeah. I can't. This is who you are. Do it. I have to go to the audition because it's their responsibility to decide if I can do it. Yeah. I don't get to decide for them. I think it's very important for people who are looking at the audition circuit or whatnot or what they think they can do. That's not your job. Somebody else's job is to see your potential and to draw that out. The only way that can happen is if you put yourself in front of them. So you do it over and over and over and over. And then at some point, because it's more than just your skill. It's like a person at the front of the room has a script that has a part that needs somebody like you. And there's a lot of factors that all need to align for that opportunity to happen. Yeah. And if you're getting your, that's chance, right? There's no skill in that. You can't, there's nothing you can do about it other than put yourself as broad as possible, be a good acrobat and a good singer and a good dancer and a good, all these things. So that increases your chance at all the rest of it. Whenever it comes in, you're ready to step up. And then you go and you find the people who are thinking innovatively or creatively about new hires or new shows. And you'd never know. Maybe you're great, like some stage makeup will make you look older. And so a part that you wouldn't consider because it's like a mom and you're like 28. But actually we could make you look like a really, like an old grandma or something. Yeah. That's the, that's the stage makeup's job to make you look old. It's the costumer's job to transform your character, and it's the director's job to see your potential. It's your job to show up. Yeah. And if you don't do your job, then you're not going to have a job to do. Yeah. And I think part of showing up is also in the audition process. Well, of your great career, and you have a second career, and you probably have a third one, what is a moment that just sticks out? It doesn't even have to be your career, of your life. I'm, I'm nostalgic, and I'm a Pisces. So I'm, I swim in emotion. <laughs> um, moments that were really great. There was a time, it was uh, the very end of Moving Out. It was the first time I performed it in New York. And so it was a Broadway stage, and I was the lead in the show. And he's gone through this horrible onslaught of the Vietnam War and arrogance and hubris, and he's come out of it to a point where he's found redemption. And he's just kind of like receive the I forgive you the husband's dead and he's responsible for the death of the husband yes the widow finally says I forgive you to some degree and and this pause he's realizing like his life has just come back he runs down to the edge of the stage he throws his arms overhead and he just says yes loudly and then the music starts and it's the finale and I remember doing that moment running to the edge of the stage and saying yes and in that moment this small town Carson City boy was on a Broadway stage in New York performing the lead. And it just, it seemed like such a moment of victory of all the obstacles, all the opportunities to say no, all the excuses to get out, that this kid, I'm talking like about Charlie, found a way like through that onslaught to get to that, that particular point. I was just, I was very proud of him because there were a thousand excuses to not do it but he found the one way to make it through or the one reason to do it. I look at that and I get very excited thinking now, he did it once before, so you can do it again. And I think we can use those small wins if you are looking at something that you never thought possible. And it could be like, when I say small wins, it could be a regional production of something. 
I started at Sacramento Ballet, which was a regional. Everybody was like, why are you going there? Because it's literally the only company that would take me. (laughs) If I don't do it, then I am a biology teacher. And if I want to do anything with dance, this is how it's going to happen. Yeah. So that's what it is. It's black and white that way. If I do it, then I dance. If I don't, then I don't. So I'm going to do it because it keeps me as close as possible to this thing that I love. And from there, there's a, le- there's a better chance of building something in that soil than building a dance career as a biology teacher at Lewis and Clark College. Yeah. So Sacramento Valley it is. And where can we go from here? What nutrients can we pull to grow whatever kind of height to climb onto the next one? And so that journey led to there. I didn't know that it would culminate with kind of a performance like that, but it did. And that has given me a renewed hope in looking at new projects or ventures in my life today. Kind of say, Charlie, you did it once before. Yeah, And all it is is a matter of listening to the right people and translating the wrong, the negative, to find your way and not give up because it's really, life is for the ones who participate. Life happens to the people who participate. Yes. So long as I'm always participating, then I'm pretty sure you know, life will happen. Yeah. And didn't you have a Vietnam vet compliment you on the street yeah. on that performance? It was, I don't know what performance it was. Um, and I was feeling really negative and down. I was like, you know, I'm not a heartthrob and I'm not attractive and I'm not all the things that this part is supposed to do. And I just feel horrible about myself. And I was on 10th Avenue going to like a rolfing massage for my IT bands or something. And I was just crying. I was just like, I should quit. I needed like everything was like done. And this older gentleman was walking in opposition. He's like, wait a minute, are you the guy that he'd recognized me from the show? He was a Vietnam vet and he just thanked me in like the simplest way of just thank you for representing my life and for, you know, taking care of it. And you freed me to a degree to be able to start to talk about our experience and all this stuff. Oh. Like, that's like it's the only critic that matters and that's what it's for this was brilliant i could keep talking to you forever but if you want more of him you should check out his uh, ted talk charlie hodges failure doesn't exist limitations breed innovation and i end the podcast with the song that plays out your credits what is the song that right now represents where you are in your life school and life by beyonce oh all right because i feel like in that song she's talking to everybody she's talking to the 20 something saying life is there for you the 30 somethings you know Keep going, the 40-year-olds, like, halfway there, the 50-year-olds, that's toast, like, you're doing this. So she, she talks to the pretty ones, like, it's not going to be forever. She talks to the ugly ones, saying, you're more than that. She, she really kind of very briefly kind of covers, and I feel like everybody is going to be in one of those categories. And she's essentially saying, like, don't give up. There's always, there's a good and a bad to every situation. You're never just, like, a winner. Um, but you're also not a loser. Yeah. And, well, that's brilliant. You're, um, you're amazing. <laughs> you're, you're st- I think you're stunning. You're a heartthrob to me. Your talent is brilliant. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for being uh, also an inspiration as a person, not just a performer. And uh, have a good show tomorrow. Thank you very much. This is for them 20-somethings. Time really moves past you were just 16. This is for them 30-somethings that didn't turn out exactly how your mom and dad this is part and part of something Well, raise up your glass and laugh like a motor This is part and fit to something Hell, you're halfway there, baby, take it to the head Mom and dad try to hide the world Said the world's just too big for a little girl Eyes wide open, can't you see? I had my first kiss by the 